Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Oh God, What Now? The British politics podcast for British people with British complaints about the British government. I'm Andrew Harrison, your host. On today's edition, the Conservatives are leaving Labour an almighty mess to clear up when, if, they get into government. Can Starmer's team fix it? Can they even stick to their own plans? Or have 14 years of Tory trauma left Britain unsalvageable? Plus, across the world, young men are getting more and more anti-feminist, says new research. Is it all Andrew Tate's fault? And what are we going to do about it? Let's meet the panel. Hello and welcome to Rachel Cunliffe, Associate Political Editor of The New Statesman. Hello, Rachel. Hello. So the retirement age is going to have to go up to 71 for people born after 1970, say the International Longevity Centre. We are journalists. We're not bin men. It's not that kind of work. But are you looking forward to an extra five years at the coalface? See, I think this is fake news. I think for anyone my age, the idea that there's ever going to be a time where we can retire, I don't don't see that. (laughs) I don't see that happening. Um, So... The idea is that people are living longer past the retirement age and the old age dependency ratio is really screwed up. Fewer working people, more older pensioners who need pensions and and social care. So it's already going to go up to 68 by 2044. Mm -hmm. The idea is that it might have to go up further to 71, Mm -hmm. but it might have to go up even further, they say, because uh, if you have people dropping out of the workforce before retirement age because of health issues, then you need other people working for longer. And I'm like, hang on, if you've got people dropping out before retirement age anyway because they have health issues, how is making people work even longer until they get to retirement age going to help with that? You're still going to have the same number of people who are too elderly and, and frail and infirm to work. So I'm not quite sure what's going on there. Yeah, the retirement age is going to disappear into the distance faster than you can catch up with it. You'll be peddling as fast as you can. The uh, Best Britain did a mega poll last week, and literally the only people vaguely interested in this government continuing were A, the over 65s, and B, people who earn more than £100,000. And even they were still in a minority. It wasn't the majority yeah. of those people. Um, is the kind of compact between retirees and the Tories going to have to break down because like there aren't enough people retiring? Well, I think one of the problems is that they keep chasing the voters they know that they have, mm. and there are fewer and fewer of them. And in doing that they are alienating everyone else. We we know that young people don't like the Tories. Unfortunately for the Tories, young now means under 50. So they've got some ways to go. But the thing I loved about this story, and when I say love, I mean absolutely despise, is uh, it's got a quote from the uh, Intergenerational Foundation that looks at the kind of covenant between the ages. And it points out that younger people 
shock horror, don't have the same financial assets that their parents and grandparents had. News to everyone. Who knew? Um, but this was quite alarming, I thought. In 2010, those under 40 held £7.53 of every £100 of wealth. By 2020, 10 years later, that had fallen to £3.98. So it's basically halved. So there are some very worrying trends going on here. And I guess the consolation, if you are the Conservatives, is it's not going to be your problem to solve. Well, absolutely, yes. Also, let's say hello to free-range political commentator and opera buff, so he's used to watching lengthy histrionic death scenes like the government. Do you see? Do you see? It's Alex Andreu. Hello, Alex. Hello. So, big week in Northern Ireland. First ever nationalist first minister, Stormont, is back. What about the Brexit dimension? I mean, this is the kind of unpicking of Boris Johnson's bodge, isn't it? It is, and I think it is actually one of those things on which we can be very generous to the government uh, because they do deserve a lot of credit. That's not why the listeners um, come here. They do deserve credit for this because it was a very narrow path to find some kind of settlement that no one was so unhappy with mm. they appended it. And they have managed to get there. And I think a lot of the credit goes to uh, Chris Heaton Harris, the Northern Ireland secretary, who is universally praised uh, behind the scenes for having achieved this. Um, it is historic to have a Sinn Féin first minister, I think. And with the prospect of a Sinn Féin government in the Republic of Ireland, if the polls are to be believed after the next election, I think it makes it even more historic and in many ways the the most present practical threat to unionism is if Sinn Féin actually turned out to be quite good at governing. Yeah. Yes, there are entrenched people who are unionist, people who are nationalist, but there is a growing slice in the middle, and you see that from the amount of people that vote for parties who are neither, that actually just want a quiet life and, yeah. and you know, for their situation to improve who if they if they see uh, an all island of ireland doing quite well under Sinn Féin i think might be swayed we'll see what happens can i say something on retirement please very to. quickly go on then just because it's my favorite bit of trivia do you know why the uh, retirement age w was set at 60 originally and was 60 for a very long time because at the time the uh, median life expectancy for a professional man was 61. <laughs> so it was it was genuinely to allow them a year to put their affairs in order before popping off. I think we should do that again. The retirement age will be 84 or whatever to get a year. Then. <laughs> and then you just die. Um, hello, completing the panel to columnist and author Marie Leconte. Hello, Marie Leconte. Hello. Uh, you've got a huge piece out today in the I paper on people who said they were much happier in lockdown. Apparently, that's 25% uh, of the population. What did you find out about us? Them. Yeah, so what did you find about them? 50% <laughs> no. of this panel. <laughs> God. Um, so actually, I will say, so it is about a quarter of people in total, but a third of Gen Z and millennials. So actually, like the, the, the people, the largest proportion of yeah of lockdown lovers uh, was actually younger lockdown lovers oh yeah. i like that so Lock yeah no really yes it, it became Keep it, keeping in mind that in lockdown you couldn't have lovers uh, and it was basically a sex ban imposed <laughs> i did really enjoy very early and i realized this is off topic but i think worth it but there was definitely like i think several features in the french press early on in the first lockdown about men who've had to give up on their mistresses and it's like <laughs> guys come on french piracies come on. 
So uh, I can see this panel is going to go yeah. rapidly, <laughs> rapidly badly wrong. So apart from the fact that the Scissor Sisters are going to do an album called Lockdown Lovers, what else yeah. did you discover? Uh, well, so I, I sat in on a focus group that was organised by More In Common, which was really interesting. So it's people between 25 and 40 who said they'd been happier during lockdown. And I mean, so there weren't any massive surprises. It was overwhelmingly people with quite young children, so who got to spend a lot of time with their kids, people who had gardens or lived in. Weirdly, there was a massive bit because you know human conversation talking about like cul-de-sacs um mm-hmm. and about you know the fact that some people lived on them and so actually that made it friendlier during lockdown and other people are like well i lived on a regular street and it was still fine um <laughs> no i will say so one thing that really came out was everyone just hates commuting but with a burning burning passion when and i feel like you know, i kind of knew that no one loved it but generally, so everyone just hated commuting so much. There's a big part of that. The one quote, which actually I'm going to have to mention now because it didn't make it to the piece because it was quite long as it was, I really enjoyed was uh, one guy because we talked about, you know, would you like to see another lockdown at some point, even if there's no <laughs> pandemic? And one man said, I think the single most British thing I have ever heard anyone say in 14 and a half years in Britain, just he said, actually, I think, you know, every couple of years, we should have a lockdown, whatever happens, so the councils can fix potholes. (laughs) (laughs) I agree totally. I just love that so much. That's perfect. Maybe like one weekend a year, so they can do like all the road works. (laughs) Like like factory week used to be. Well, just moving on from uh, just noting that that's the first time any of us have ever heard cul-de-sac pronounced correctly. (laughs) Uh, Before we get into the meat of the show, a little reminder about Patreon and how you can support Oh God What Now. We always say, don't forget to back us and, you know, get a mug and a t-shirt, but we don't always explain why. Patreon is our bedrock. We've built the whole thing on you, our supporters, and the advertising market is getting a bit tighter, so I'm afraid we're probably going to have to rely on you a little bit more. We know that times are tight, but if you can find that £3 a month, or maybe a little more, to keep your favourite traitorous podcast and its little siblings going then please do so. It is always brilliant to see new backers coming in and to see people who used to support us coming back and signing in again. So we're going to be going into a new era of politics next year. We want to be there to cover it for you. So join or rejoin our Patreon army right now. There's a link in the show notes. First up, Labour are about to inherit an absolute nightmare across everything the government does and they are responding with an excess of caution, making so few commitments that core supporters are getting worried. Latest to fall is the pre-election commitment to the famous £28 billion green investment. This week, Darren Jones, Shadow Chief Secretary of the Treasury, said Labour would only decide on how much to spend on environmental programmes once it got into government, depending on the state of the economy. Alongside the party's reversal on scrapping bankers' bonuses and the corporation tax cut, its refusal to commit to undoing Conservative legislation on voting and protest, and, of course, the deafening silence on Brexit, this has got lots of people wondering, is Labour's abundance of caution wise? Or does the party fear that the Conservatives have made Britain unfixable? Rachel, first up, the green investment. This was the symbol of Labour's commitment to the environment, but it was also uh, you know, a real target for Tories to play the high-spending Labour card. What has happened? Is it dead? If so, why? What's happening? OK, so I think... One thing that is happening is there are, and this again will come as a surprise to everyone, there are some people within the Labour Party who don't like Ed Miliband. (laughs) So I feel that what happens with this is Ed Ed Miliband, this was his big thing, Mm -hmm. 28 billion green investment. He is the shadow energy 
everything. Um, and it's also like a passion project for him. And he's a figure in Labour that some people are a bit uncertain about because obviously he was leader. He's a bit left wing. Some of them prefer his brother David, who may or may not make a return. Um, got to have as many Milibans in, in Labour as possible. So there is a lot of briefing against him. And I feel like I have heard variations of they're scrapping the 28 billion and they're not scrapping it. They're scrapping it and they're not scrapping it. Like every couple of weeks for the last six months or so. Rachel Reeves doesn't like it. She thinks it's too expensive. And she, at Labour's big, shiny uh, business conference last week, refused to commit to it. It has been watered down already. It was, we'll spend that by the end of the parliament. And obviously it includes lots of spending commitments that the government has already made. If you speak to Labour figures about it now, they'll say, well, it's not about the number. It's about where we're trying to get to. And you're like, yeah, but the number was kind of how how we get there. But the number was also symbolic. It was symbolic of a Labour Party that understood that investment is needed and that, and I think this is a, a, a really interesting argument that they would do well to be a bit braver making, that it is not financially irresponsible to spend lots of money investing as long as it's the right things that you're investing in. And actually, it is more irresponsible to not invest and to say, well, we don't have the money for that now, because then, as we have discovered, everything starts falling apart. And you go, why are the concrete ceilings falling on the children's heads? Mm. And it's because there was an investment plan, there wasn't the money for it. So that's the argument I think Labour ought to be making, but they're terrified of giving the Conservatives any ammunition at all. And this 28 billion figure, some in the party are worried that gives the Tories too much of an attack line. Yeah. I mean, the programme itself, as you said, was quite fuzzy. It included making Britain decarbonised and a clean superpower, insulating homes, improving transport infrastructure, low carbon industry, and, you know, basically a, a low carbon setup for for Britain. Can't all that be sold as the kind of tough, necessary, difficult action that we need after 14 years of, uh, you know, self-serving, irresponsible, trivial politics? It can. Uh, and when the Conservatives say that they're going to cut taxes by X amount, people don't say, or they do a little bit, but not as much, you know, you've now got a 20 billion hole in your budget because of this, which I think is partly an advantage you get when you're the government. You can say, we're doing it. This is how it's going to work. Tough, basically. Uh, I was speaking to Chris Skidmore last week, who obviously has stood down as an MP over Rishi Sunak's U-turn on on net zero. And he was basically saying, it's, it's not about the figure necessarily, it's about the vision, but really he thinks 28 billion needs to be the starting point for where we need to get to. It's not like that money goes into a black hole, it goes into saving money mm. on in other ways in the fuel subsidies that we the government has to pay. There are jobs involved in it. Like there were, it. It's not just a case of we bought a new shiny thing and now the money is gone. I just don't think Labour at the moment feels that they have the maybe skills. So that's possibly being unfair. They don't want to risk trying to communicate it. So they just want to shut the whole conversation down. Yeah. Alex, am I right in thinking that kind of you know, aggregated polling, uh, or maybe this is just vibes, indicate that dropping the green investment doesn't actually gain any red wall votes, but it risks losing core Labour votes because it just adds to the whole Starmer won't commit, he's easily knocked off course perspective. You're right in thinking that, but I would caveat that very heavily because, as always, single sort of issue polling can be quite... Um, deceptive in that a lot of people might 
sort of complain about a change of policy on X or Y. But actually, if you look at the voting intention data, the lead for Labour is holding very, mm. very firm at the moment and even increasing because you're seeing a movement of both Liberal Democrat and Green voters towards the Labour Party. I mean, I went back and listened actually to what we said after the Axbridge by-election. Mm -hmm. And I think there is a different danger for Labour. And it is this. I identified a category error that they were in danger of making back then, and they are making exactly that category error. They think that the Conservatives will fight the next election on wedge issues. That isn't the strategy, because none of those issues, either individually or even put together, have the capacity to swing the vote by the, you know, 20-odd points that it needs to swing. What the strategy is, is to depict Starmer as someone indecisive, inconstant, untrustworthy, with a disunited party behind him. This is why um, the Conservatives keep poking wedge issues, because they know it creates noise in the backbenches behind him, unhappy MPs, and it makes him look like a ditherer and a, a, a person who will change their mind, whatever happens. That is the Tory strategy. That is the only thing that can actually change minds in sufficient numbers. I mean, having said that, there must have been a calculation, one would hope at some point, that unless committed to this fully, which might make the coming election a sort of labor tax and spend or borrow and spend election, you're better off ditching it, right? Unless you're ready to make it like the central battle of the coming election, you're better off dropping it. Personally, I think it's a strategic error. I do agree with Rachel that this is a verdant area on which Labour can pick a fight, and most people will agree with it. Mm -hmm. Marie, even considering what Alex has just said, can the Conservatives still get away with, like, woo, high-spending Labour after the insane profligacy and kind of crony feathering that we've seen the past five years? It's a bit like, you know, uh, seeing, a, you know seeing a guy staggering through your front door reeking of booze saying that your husband drinks a little bit too much, that kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? It, well, I, so I didn't think they can get away with it, but not quite for that, because I think the state also spent a lot of money during, during the pandemic. And people liked that. People enjoyed mm. furlough. People, you know, mm. were happy to be able to keep on living, <laughs> yeah. etc. So I think, obviously, there, there was some bad spending, but there was a lot of good that, spending that, as well. That, that's how Rishi Sunak became popular. Yeah, because, no, exactly. because he gave people a money. lot of free yeah. money. Ama amazingly, so I'm a political expert. And as a political <laughs> expert, I can tell you giving people a lot of free money will make yeah. them like you. Um, so I think, you know, A, there's that. Um, but B, also, if you look at every bit of polling um, on economic issues, people at the moment do not want tax cuts. They want more investment. Like They realise that everything is broken. Yeah. And also at the moment, you know, Labour is leading the Tories on who would be the better at managing the economy, which is always a massive, yeah. massive uh, figure leading into any election. So, no, I think that they, but, they've lost that one. But don't you think there's a paradox there in that people do want Labour to spend money, mm. They don't want the detail of where exactly it will come from. So they don't want to be told that, you know, this tax will go up by 2p. Mm. Um, that's when people start to go, ooh, I'm not sure about that. I think that. one of the problems is that people already feel the tax burden is very high, which obviously it yeah. is, yeah. and they feel like things are falling apart, which they are. So, yes, people want to spend lots of money and to invest, but there's kind of 
a confusion and I cover this for a living and I'm kind of confused <laughs> as to how taxes can be so high and public services can be so disastrously yeah. cut to the mm. bone. And I think Labour is going to have a challenging job explaining that. Uh, the Conservatives have completely failed to explain that, but they're going to be faced with the same communications yeah. problem. And it's one of those as well. I think, yeah, even as a punter, I would kind of struggle with them going, okay, so you're paying a lot of taxes at the moment, which has been used very badly by the Tories, but we're going to need you to pay even more. And it's like, no, no, but could could you not rearrange the taxes rule? You know, and I feel like yeah. on a really like base level. But at least you it, can yeah. point to your team and go, and you'll be paying a lot of tax, but it'll be being administered by these people yeah. who clearly aren't a bunch of failed apprentice contestants, liars and charlatans. Or we, if they are, we don't know it yet. Mm. You know. Yeah. Um, we are told, Marie, that Labour's putting together a bomb-proof manifesto. Mm. Equipment's going to be limited. No national care service has promised, but instead it'll be a 10-year review of social care. No abolishing the Lords in the first term. Uh, the centrepiece instead is going to be an end to fire and rehire and an expansion of workers' rights. Do you think that's going to like get the pulse pounding when the country's falling to bits? Well, so I think, actually, interestingly, I've been reading about New Labour recently in about 97, like I think mm -hmm. a lot of journalists are getting ready for the next election. Um, and what is interesting is that Tony Blair did nearly the same thing. So they had a full sort of, you know, prepared Labour manifesto, but before they launched it, I believe. So I think Blair himself went away for like 48 hours by himself and went through the manifesto himself and tried, and I think they use the phrase bomb-proof as well, and kind of, you know, noted all the different bits of policies that could create problems. So, so in the end, I think... It is this weird trick of memory. I think, you know, we think about 97 and Labour being actually really bold and, you know, and Blair changing everything and stuff. But the manifesto was incredibly cautious. The five pledges were so thin on the ground. Like they were not, yeah. was it stuff like, oh, well, kids between the ages of five and seven will no, no longer be in classes of more than 30 kids. Like that is literally one of the big five pledges they had. Like they, they pledge very small. So I think it ultimately all depends on what they do once they win. Because as we know, New Labour did do a lot of big stuff once they yeah. came into power, but they just didn't really go in uh, massively on it during the election. Well, I can I am anxious enough to remember this and having rows with a couple of mates who were Labour spads saying, "You're just dropping everything. What is the positive reason to vote?" Yeah. It's like it's deja vu all over again. I've seen mm. this movie before. I was kind of in it, yeah. you know. <laughs> and uh, I mean, who would play you? Um, Charles Hawtrey, as usual, <laughs> um, or possibly the Milky Bar Kid. Um, <laughs> But then, you know, it went on to be the best government of my lifetime. Mm. You know. Um, but so again, so you don't have that manifestos are not that important, essentially, is what I would say. Don't put that in the paper. Yeah. There'll be, they'll, they'll be trouble. Well, they're doing the manifesto this week, aren't they? They are they? doing the manifesto. They have, to, they have to get their points in, their ideas in by Thursday, which was uh, a scoop by a colleague at the New Statesman. Yeah. First, first uh, announced that at the end of last year. So Labour were pushing really hard this narrative that the election's definitely going to be in May, so they have to get their manifesto all kind of done and dusted well in advance of that. I don't think Labour actually believe it's going to be in May. I think that's a thing that they just keep saying because they hope if they keep saying it, we'll all think that Rishi Sunak has said it. And then when Rishi Sunak doesn't do it, we'll go, but you, you turned. And actually it will be that Labour said it. Um, Sorry, that was a digression. <laughs> that that is an interesting digression. <laughs> I didn't think there's going to be an election in May. It's not the worst plan, I think, if you set expectations. Because politics is about 80% expectations. Yeah. If you set expectations, then, you know, you yeah. just lay, like, a beautiful trap for your opponents. So well, if it was calls Cameron's it in October, strategy against yeah. Brown, yeah. and it worked. Mm. But I think, yeah. they're, I think they're doing that. But, yes, they're getting the manifesto's proposals in this week. So, come on, uh, totally betray your magazine and tell us what you're hearing before you put it in the mag. I'm not hearing anything because I cover the Tories. Okay, <laughs> well, you must be hearing something. Uh, no, I think it's 
very much on broad brush these are the missions. Every time you talk to a Labour MP at the moment and you say, come on, give us some detail, they're like, well, here's where we want to get to. And you're like, yes, but how will you do it? And they go, but here's where we want to get to. Their, <laughs> message, their message discipline is on point. I think Marie's been finding this as well. Like, you uh, cannot get them to say any details about anything except, except you know, good. this is where we want to go. Well, Rachel, I wanted to ask you, Labour's been floating expanded childcare around and has yet to commit to it fully and openly. Are Labour partly sitting on these policies simply because they know the Tories will steal them? Yes, I think that very, very much so. And Charco is a great example of that. So uh, in December 2022, so just over a year ago, uh, again, one of my other colleagues at the New Statesman interviewed Bridget Phillipson and she was talking about bold plans for childcare. And, and that was in December. And then in the March budget, Jeremy Hunt announced the Tory version of it, which was sort of childcare light. And I don't think Labour thought they were going to do that. Now, I've had arguments with Tory MPs about this, and they say, well, childcare reform, childcare expansion was always a Conservative policy because we need to get more people into the workforce, we need to increase productivity. How do you get more working-age women in particular into the workforce? You mean that they don't have to take out a second mortgage, essentially, to, to pay nursery fees. Um, and they said, we were always going to do this. I don't think that's the case. I think that the childcare, the Tory focus on childcare was very much being spooked by Labour and thinking like if Labour can get working parents on board, that's a huge electoral demographic. But the Tory childcare plan is meant to come into force in April. And by all accounts, it's going to be an absolute shambles. There won't be the places, the nurseries are saying they don't have the staff. As before, they've set the rate that they pay the nurseries to lows. You've got a whole lot of nurseries that are worried about going bust anyway as it is. So I think the shambolic nature of the rollout of that that's expected to be will be very helpful for Labour to be like, well, you know, you gave them a chance and look at what they've done with it, we'll do it properly. They stole the headline policy, but they were brittle in the detail underneath. Yeah, in the application. It's going to be interesting when they're in opposition and Miriam Cates is shadow minister for keeping everybody pregnant, isn't it? Like, get rid of (laughs) childcare. What do you want to work for? Miriam Cates is not going to be an MP after the next election. Okay. We're hoping. Um, Marie, what's all this doing for Starmer as the as this figure bestriding the country? I mean, not not much. I think that he he's he remains equal to himself. I think in, in, in that, you know, to be fair to him is very constant. So he is someone who is very cautious, uh, who clearly thinks uh, things through. He's not political with a big P, I think. Uh, he's not a kind of like big party political mind. Um, I think the Tories can still get some stuff out of him kind of being a bit of a flip flopper, which is not entirely unreasonable. Like, you know, he he has been known to, I mean, change his mind or, you know, in a, in a much more kind of planned manner, decide to say one thing at some point and then say another, you know, at a different time. Now, he is definitely quite ruthless. I think that, that that is the interesting thing about his personality where he is clearly, you know, like quite dull. And again, that like, isn't necessarily a kind of, you know, proper like, bruiser in the way yeah. that politics sometimes gets them. But he's also entirely ruthless. Like, you know, and he has given up when you look at, you know, all the stuff he campaigned on when he wanted to become a uh, Labour leader. He has actually given up uh, on a lot of that. And I know that the Labour left are occasionally very annoying, but they're not wrong about that. You know, he, he's entirely changed as a person. Um, but I would say that since then, you know, since that kind of change of costume, he's not changed that much since so yes so before we move on then flip the potential future on its head what if in the five percent three percent one percent chance the conservatives actually do win Mm. and they've already burned their their house down with this kind of like make it as difficult for labor as possible Mm. how can the conservatives continue to 
govern a country that they've where they've left a mess for Labour? Well, I think you do what Conservative governments always do, and you blame the last Labour government. Mm, <laughs> of Rishi Sunak. <laughs> no, but you, you, you say we wouldn't be in this position now if it hadn't been for the last Labour government, and you, someone says they got voted out in 2010, and you change the subject. Easy. Mm. That's what they've been doing. Yeah. No, I don't think it's as simple as that on this occasion, because this kind of sort of scorched and salted earth thing is very, very difficult to recover. And I think this is actually an extraordinary feature of what's going on that very few people are discussing. Their strategy is completely defensive. It is about limiting their losses. Mm -hmm. And if by some fluke they end up, they end up getting in, we are fucked. Mm -hmm. We are in for a hundred years of austerity because they have genuinely knackered everything. And it reminds me actually of Cameron's promise of a referendum where he didn't think he would get a majority and then he got a majority and it was like, whoops. Well, I think actually mentioning Cameron is quite interesting because the Conservative Parliamentary Party does not like Rishi Sunak right Mm. now. None of the groups. It's it's interesting you look at the Conservative tribes, however many of them you think there are. Rishi Sunak isn't really part of any of them. And the reason he's in position is not because he's popular. It's because none of the groups can decide who they want next in any way. They don't want to change leader again before the next election. They want him to take the fall for the election defeat. They want to blame it on him and then get somebody else in. So I think if he were by fluke to win the election, a lot of Conservative MPs would be really, really upset about it. Can I just say, and this is me partly trolling, but not entirely, I think if somehow, let's say, okay, yeah, something happens, you know, Keir Starmer is found to have, like, shot dogs for fun. Um, <laughs> and then, like, you know, uh, the Tories somehow win the election again. I would, I can't believe I'm saying this, I would actually put some money on List Trust winning again. I wouldn't rule anything out. We're sort of in that Ionesco yeah. kind oh, yeah. of. Yeah, yeah. If you told me the next Tory lady was going to be Dr. Doom or Voldemort, I'd go, I wouldn't rule it out. Yeah. So the plan is don't blame it on sunshine, don't blame it on moonlight, don't blame it on good times, blame it on the Sunak. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Next up, time to choose our hero and villain of the week. Who is this week's Killer Mike winning three hip-hop Grammys at the age of 48? And who is this week's cop who arrested Killer Mike straight after he won three hip-hop Grammys? 
Marie, who are your heroes and your villains of the week? So my hero would be Brian Ajay's mother, so the uh, mum of the teenage uh, trans girl who got murdered. Um, I think just the way she's conducted herself has been incredible and really courageous and really brave. But also I think she said uh, today that she would be willing to meet the mother of her daughter's killer. Yeah. I think the quote really stuck with me. She said, I want her to know that I understand how difficult being a parent is in this current day and age, which I think is just such a it's gracious, incredible thing. Unbelievable strength of that, of yeah, um, character, yeah. yeah. So absolutely her. And then so my villain uh, is slightly more whimsical because I thought that that was uh, a, a bit heavy. My villain is uh, the Roman Empire because it turns... <laughs> Too soon, Marie. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, right. Because turns out, no, no, actually, so it's this really cool uh, archaeological find uh, from last week. They're the ones who brought bedbugs to Britain. <laughs> <laughs> No, I know. Yeah, no, yeah but what also, do the Romans ever do for us? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, it's a bold, um, bold idea. Yeah, but yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, so I would actually really recommend reading the study. It's really, really interesting. But no, I, I saw that and I said, like, "Well, fuck you guys." Yeah. Um, so yeah, Roman Empire. Okay, I'll expect that. Who's your hero? Who's your villain? So my hero is Rihanna Magsi, um, who is the only woman to be contesting the election in Pakistan. She's standing in the region of Balochistan, which is a sort of massive but very sparsely populated um, region, despite facing incredible threats of violence. And and the reason I've chosen her is because it's in, certainly in my living memory that Benazir Bhutto was Prime Minister of Pakistan, and, you know, for most of the 90s. And 25 years later, we're talking about a woman standing at the election as an extraordinary act of heroism. Mm. And I think it's an interesting cautionary tale of how hard-won rights can regress and can regress very, very quickly. Um, my villains of the week are Rishi Sunak and Piers Morgan, for betting a grand that people will be deported to Rwanda before the next election, for it to be treated, for people's life lives to be treated so superficially as a as a fucking joke that two very rich men can put a grand's worth of bet on. I think it is genuinely disgusting. Rachel. I also have a serious one, a flippant one. I will start with the serious one, which is my villain of the week, which is Anyone who sends death threats to MPs, uh, in particular, obviously Mike Freer, who announced that he's not going to contest the next election because the <clears throat> death threats and you know very uh, credible death threats, given that his parliamentary his uh, constituency office suffered a, a horrific arson attack. Anyone who is so frustrated with British politics at the moment, and let's face it, we're all pretty frustrated, but who takes that step? It makes it harder for decent people to go into politics. Mike Freer is my parents' MP. He's been a very good local constituency MP. You don't have to agree with him. You don't have to agree with his voting record. But if people like that are too afraid, literally, that they are going to be attacked and, and killed, obviously we've had a couple of MPs' deaths very tragically in the last couple of years, you only get people who are power-crazed maniacs. And I don't think anyone benefits from that. Uh, my hero, I was uh, lacking inspiration this week, so I've gone for Taylor Swift. Not just, <laughs> not just yes. because uh, she she won a Grammy, but the fact that she could be the one thing standing between 
the world and a second Trump presidency, <laughs> uh, which is obviously a massive conspiracy theory that she's going to endorse Biden. She endorsed Biden in, in 2020. Um, but the power of teenage girls and young women to register to vote in key states because they love her music and to be the deciding factor in that in that presidential race. I love everything about that. Um, it would be really, really funny. Mm, it would really, really annoy him. It would really annoy it would him. Really, really annoy him. Yeah. This is a tricky one. Uh, I'm choo- the hero I'm choosing is uh, Brianna Joe's mom because um, the, the most horrific thing has happened to her, and she's managed to display a, a level of humanity and empathy that I think would certainly be beyond me and beyond most of us. So, I think she gets uh, she gets hero for this week. And villain Rishi Sunak and Piers Morgan will recur a lot. They are perennial evergreen bastards. So I'm going to give it to the people who make death threats against MPs because they poison everything. So yeah, there's your hero and your villain. Right, they say you get more right-wing as you get older. Now it seems it's happening to men where they're younger as well. According to Ipsos polling for King's College London's Policy Unit and the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, Gen Z boys and men are more likely than baby boomers to think feminism has done more harm than good. One in four UK males aged 16 to 29 believe it is harder to be a man than a woman, and around a third of them think it will be harder to be a man in 20 years' time. Meanwhile, research from Stanford indicates that Gen Z is hyper-progressive on certain issues, but surprisingly conservative on others, as the FT put it, and generally it's women who are progressive and young men who are becoming more conservative. What does it mean? Are we in for a more divided and divisive future? Let's talk feminism. Alex. No, no, Marie, uh, among the standouts from the King study are admiration for Andrew Tate and Jordan Peterson. Professor Rosie Campbell from the Global Institute for Women's Leadership said this group is the first to derive most of their information from social media. That is likely to be at least part of the explanation for this. Uh, what is the research really saying? Woman, explain it to me. Uh, so I actually prefer the term Marie Splain. Okay, Marie Splain. Uh, but thank you. Uh, no, well, I mean, so, so I think the research sadly is not, and I mean, it, it is shocking, but it's not entirely surprising because uh, there was a similar massive global survey in 2020 that actually showed quite similar results. So it's not, um, at the rate, it's not a case of, you know, in the past three years, things have gone drastically worse. Things have actually been bad for longer than that. Oh, great. <laughs> and isn't that nice? All right. Um, uh, yeah, but I mean, the, the data is kind of weird, as, as you kind of alluded to, because again, on some stuff, you know, you, you do get... Uh, a majority of young men uh, and men of all ages, I think, saying that, you know, it is harder to be a woman than to be a man, etc. But at the same time, you do get, again, like a very stubborn minority of young men, you know, kind of, I suppose, I think, I don't know, fighting back against feminism is the right term because they're not necessarily active about it, but certainly thinking that it's actually, you know, fe- fem- was it feminism asks too much of men, for mm. example, and stuff like that. So... I, I, I think the kind of million-dollar question here is really whether we should actually be massively surprised or is there always going to be a kind of minority uh, of men, especially who believe that. And on the internet point, it is a tough one, I think. I don't know, because I, I used to be part of the camp of people who were definitely very worried about Jordan Peterson and about um, Andrew Tate, etc. But then talking to people who kind of know their stuff, like they seemed... Like it was one of those rare cases where actually the experts sounded less worried than oh, the yeah. people who were not experts. And it was like, oh, that's nice. Why are the experts um, less worried? Then? But in that, you know, for example, the Andrew Tate stuff, like that was kind of a flash in the pan in that he gamed the TikTok algorithm effectively. He gamed, you know, all the kind of algorithms on social media. That's why he was everywhere. And, you know, and as a result, I think lots of people just saw him and, and it's probably 
quite like you shouldn't extrapolate massively from especially young men going yeah I've seen him or occasionally probably just going oh yeah you know some of his stuff was fine yeah I'm sure that not all of his stuff is just kind of like the pure poison massive misogyny thing so yes so again weirdly I used to be massively worried but I'm now less worried because yeah the people who know their stuff are saying actually they're not convinced it's anything new I find that really interesting because I did an interview this time last year with uh, somebody who works at the Institute of Strategic Dialogue that works on issues of extremism and radicalization, And their point was, yes, Andrew Tate was able to game the algorithm, but because he was able to make money from doing that, because the algorithm was so Mm. easily gameable, there are lots of other men who have looked at that grift and gone, well, hang on, how can I mimic that? Mm. And how can I produce content that I don't necessarily believe, but mm. it will get me on into this sort of algorithm spiral where people go and mm. read, watch more and more and more and more. And once you set the precedent that outrageous views mm. are what's going to get you lots of attention, you're going to get more and more people doing that. And I think you're seeing that in lots of aspects of sort of the online world, like all the trad wife culture, mm. all these videos of women baking while wearing Which are very... basically just porn they're for porn. men. They're they're, porn, yeah, yeah, they're actually not so, aimed at women in any no, no, way. No, no. Like, they're yeah. women with perfect hair and very low-cut tops baking often recipes that don't really make any sense. But I think it's the same thing, which is that clicks and eyeballs equal cash. And if you can but are they really changing people? hearts and minds is i think the the again the million dollar question well i think they're encouraging lots of people to go oh if i can make money off doing this i'll become an influencer basically influencers are creating more influencers yeah sure but then ooh, the internet has a sexism problem <laughs> like you know it's, it's yeah i don't know like, but, yes I'm, I'm now choosing to be more optimistic i think but that's an interesting thought is it the idea that uh so many people in this world might be behaving in what you'd imagine to be an insincere way but it's become an engine to mm. just generate more of itself. Terribly, terribly postmodernist, isn't it? It's very mm. meta. Yeah, very, very meta. Um, Marie, I mean, does it make sense to to conflate these kind of social attitudes and this kind of sexism with a political agenda? Because obviously there's a lot, there's a lot of crossover with, uh, you know, incel culture and all the stuff that we read terrible stories mm. about and actual right-wing politics. But it's entirely possible for, you know, guys to nurture a kind of directionless resentment of women and not buy the whole identitarian package or the entire mm. right-wingery package. Uh, so I think it really depends uh, between countries. So I think in places like South Korea, where explicitly, I think, you know, like conservative political leaders really try to harness the kind of anti-feminist backlash, that definitely work. And I think they end up feeding off each other, um, which is why they ended up getting this incredibly conservative um, president back in 2000 and, uh, 2002. Back in 2022, uh, who had but like, policies that were so dog whistly of saying that, you know, there were going to be much longer prison sentences for false accusations of rape, which and, and which is not really a thing that massively oh. happens. So that that's clearly, again, like trying to appeal to the kind of like misogynist uh, vote. So I think, yes. Yeah, so, so again, if you've got a political scene which harnesses that in some way, that's probably going to get worse. Oh, the US being another like classic example, I think. In Britain, to be fair, you know, and I think our political class is... Not the best in many ways, um, but but no one even remotely near the mainstream is doing that at the moment. And and also if you look, and again, that's kind of, I think, a cause for optimism, at least here. Um, young British men are still way more to the left of, you know, like um, older British women. So I don't think we have that massive gender thing like quite as much in Britain. But yeah, certainly in other countries, I think where 
politicians have decided to try and harness that. That's become more of a, again, yeah, more of a kind of like perpetual motion machine. Rachel, do you think it's a, it's a mistake to seed big quote marks men's issues to like Manosphere Burks, like Martin Daubney? You know, shouldn't the shouldn't the kind of uh, the more progressive end of it uh, politics be recognising that there are a sphere of men's problems? And that they should be uh, they should be looked at as men's problems because progressive politics is about ensuring that everyone gets a, 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 a decent opportunity to benefit from what society has to offer, and that there can be uh, you know politically disenfranchised males as well. Yes, that's a very short answer to the question. Yes, absolutely. Uh, there are problems that affect men more than women or other groups in society. Suicide rates are one of them. Of course, that's a massive issue. Of course, we should be talking about it more. Of course, there should be better funding and better conversations of mental health services in general. And if male loneliness is a real problem, which from reading a lot of these blogs of of, of men's rights activists, it, it seems to be, yes, there should be systems in place to support that. Again, I don't see any work going on in that space and there is work going on in that space but I don't see it happening from the people who go feminism's gone too far look at these problems that affect men the solution offered by the manosphere is it's all women's fault and actually generally it's women who are working more on poverty and 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 children's neglect issues and mental health in general so I I don't think painting it in that binary way really helps anyone. It just feels like any time anyone calls for, there should be a minister for men in the same way that there's a minister for women. They don't actually want to address any of those problems. Mm. They just want to stick it to feminism. Yeah, that's that's true. But also it tends to get dismissed pretty quickly as boo-hoo, what about the men's? You know, as if um, as if the problems themselves are dismissed as well. And not always by the most reputable voices. Well... Yeah. In the same way that every time, and I'm going to forget the date of it now, but every time International Women's Day comes around, yes. which is the 8th of March, you'll get the inevitable, what about an International Day for Men? And that's the, someone help me here, 14th of November? I don't know. There I was, don't know. There is a date in November, which yeah. is the date for men. Alex, what's so appealing about the far right to the disconnected young male anyway? Why aren't they becoming like communists and anarchists as well? If it, if if kind of sense of belonging and and sort of radical action is the attraction, why are they going there's to a, the right, there, not anywhere else? There's a lot of work on this. So a few years ago, I read a, a U.S. sociologist's book, Michael Kimmel's "How Young Men Get Into and Out of Violent Extremism." Very good book. What is valuable in the book is that it has hundreds of interviews with what what are known as formers, Mm. so people who flirted with radicalization but were kind of pulled back from it. Um, And what you find out is that masculinity is the instrument of radicalization, specifically. That's why it appeals. Mm. Communism promises, broadly speaking, the same for everyone. Anarchy promises, broadly speaking, no rules. This kind of authoritarian far-right radicalization promises getting the stuff that someone else has taken from you and giving it back to you because you're superior. Mm. And and so you can't separate um, uh, masculinity from it. Masculinity is the instrument by which they get to them. And what I found very interesting is that the, there was a recent study by George Hawley um, on the demography of the alt-right, and it found that women 
you know, their feelings of white identity in America, where the study was, were much, much stronger, and yet they weren't radicalized at the same rate as men because the language, the instrument of recruitment is masculinity. Right. And it's interesting how when you look back at kind of classic communist art, it is the muscular masculine yeah, worker yeah, yeah, with yeah. a great big yeah. old hammer and sickle. So, you know, it's, it's stacking on, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I, I had a really interesting conversation on this with an expert, uh, Cynthia Miller Idris, recently, who works actively in the area of de-radicalizing these young men. She said something that really stuck with me. I, I paraphrase it, but the gist of it was that the state across the developed world in the last few decades has, has made a, a conscious effort to step in and redress imbalances based on gender, based on race, based on sexual orientation in the last few decades, with varied success. But there is an inequality that has become much worse during all this, and that is based on class. So if you sub subtract from the working class women, because they're getting a bit of help, and people of color because they're getting a bit of help, this is ignoring yeah. intersectionality, mm -hmm. you know, LGBTQ plus people because they're getting a bit of help. This is not what I believe. This is what yeah. radicalized yeah. young men believe. So they see the state acting on behalf of all those people, and the only bit that's left behind is literally white straight working class boys and that is the way they perceive it i don't buy it like i said but i found it incredibly thought-provoking mm. that you yeah. know you see the inequality growing in this area and they it may be the demographic that is feeling that no one has their back yeah and, and in a sense it doesn't matter whether you buy it or not because if they believe they it, buy it that's going to drive their yeah. politics yeah yeah We've reached the end of the show, so it's time for Escape Routes, the books, the films, the music, the whatever else that's helping us get through the enduring misery of politics. Uh, Rachel, I'm going to start with you. What have been your escape routes? Uh, so I am late to this, but I'm staying at my parents' house at the moment, and they, unlike us, have Apple TV. Whole new world out there. <laughs> um, I can't, I've got Netflix and Prime, and I can't afford another one. Um, so I have uh, just discovered Schmigadoon. What's this? What? what? Okay, no one has heard of this. You're Amazing. Uh, so I am a musicals obsessive. I love musicals. Can you say it again? Schmigadoon. Okay. Brigadoon, but a parody. Okay. So the premise is uh, a New York couple end up in a magical land and they end up in a, a musical, a Rogers and Hammerstein style musical, Carousel, so Oklahoma. <laughs> well, Brigadoon. Yeah, that is they my worst nightmare. They can't leave until they find true love. Uh, and uh, then, and then, season two, they move into a new era of musicals, and it's cabaret, Chicago, Sweeney Todd, Sondheim. It's got of this. it's got Alan Cumming being a superstar. Down the middle of the table here, yeah. <laughs> Alan I'm Cumming being a superstar. Kristen Chenoweth being an absolute superstar. The choreography, the songs are incredible. If you like musicals, it's the best thing ever. If you don't like musicals, you might think that it is so far up its own ass. It doesn't really know what it's trying to do. But I love it. Okay. Right, okay. Sounds great. <laughs> Alex, what's your... Uh... IT maintenance. <laughs> I know this does not sound like an escape route, but you just have to trust me, okay? So I, I took this weekend to tidy up my 
computers, my phone, my... <laughs> Seriously, I saved everything I needed into a monstrously large external drive. I went on to my emails, went to the deleted folder and meticulously unsubscribed from everything that was sending me emails that I just delete before I even reply. I cannot recommend it enough. We all understand the therapeutic properties of a good spring clean Mm. um, and and throwing stuff away and taking stuff to the charity shop. We don't do it with our electronic space and we spend an increasing amount of time in our electronic space. It is incredibly uplifting. You've been Mary Kondoing your Gmail. I have. Crazy, crazy, crazy nights. I've Mary Kondoed my G drive. Mm, fantastic. Just Cause that sounds like a euphemism. That is don't, a euphemism. Don't come and knock in while they <laughs> Seriously, know. try. Try a spring <laughs> e-clean. <laughs> it will be the best few hours you've ever spent. Marie, what is your escape route? Um, so I will say, actually, because um, I've had a number of tweets over the past few months of people who've gone to watch movies I've recommended on here, which is generally the loveliest thing. Mm-hmm. Um, You're but, an influencer. Yeah. So I am very specifically about cinema. Which, sure, I'm happy with it. Are you always I, recommending books? No, How no, can I've, this be? I've recommended movies quite a lot, okay, Alex. Yeah, I'll, find, fine, I'll so. have you know. Um, but no, and actually, so yeah, on that note, I would re recommend American fiction. Uh, so the idea is that the plot is this black middle class writer and academic, and he's clearly sort of like, you know, quite brainy and right, because he writes books that no one reads. Mm-hmm. He gets increasingly frustrated, and there's family stuff going on, which means that he kind of needs money. And literally, as a joke, he writes, you know, the most kind of like pandering parody of the black novel. It becomes this massive success. <laughs> and obviously, he writes it under a pseudonym. And yeah, and, and then chaos kind of unfolds. Yeah. And also, I mean, A, it's, you know, like the, the story is really good. And I think it's biting satire. Um, but the, all the, because they are quite a bit of like, um, it's quite, a bit, it's kind of a family drama at the same time. And those bits are great. But mostly, it's incredibly funny. And then it's a proper, like, I got to watch it in quite a full room at the cinema. And there were at least about, I'd say, like 10 moments where the entire room just really burst out laughing, which doesn't happen that often, I would say. So, I really yeah. want to see this. I it's love Jeffrey really Wright. Good. Jeffrey Wright's brilliant. I loved him in Westworld. He's the watcher in What If. Mm-hmm. Jeffrey Wright, love him. No. You know that actually happened. The film, which I haven't seen, Love Story, the kind of classic film. Mm-hmm. It was a. It, I haven't seen it. It was. It, it. It was a hit decades ago. Anyway, the guy who wrote the film only wrote it because he wanted to have some money to fund his true love, which was studying classical poetry in Latin Aww. and Greek. And he was like, "Well, no one's going to read my books on Latin and Greek, so I'll, I'll make this film, and then I'll be able to study that forever." So there's a little bit of the producers happening for real. <laughs> we didn't mean it, but it's a hit. <laughs> you lousy fruit! You ruined my life. <laughs> Right. Okay. Well, mine, obviously, I'm still in utter mourning and a pit of despair that Jurgen Klopp is leaving Liverpool. I will never get over this. My heart is broken. Shut up. But I've been getting over it by watching the fantastic documentary Scala about the Scala cinema in King's Cross, London, uh, co-directed by friend of the podcast, Ali Catterall. It is just brilliant. It is a window into a world that's completely gone of late night, all-nighters, amazing, you know, just like mad gay movies, horror, you know, action films, kung fu. John Waters. John Waters is in it. Yeah, John Waters, he's he's in it. Everybody's in it. And it just, it shows you a kind of lost world, lost demimond of freaks and weirdos and the amazing films that not only they watched, but the the things that they were inspired to do by the kind of mind-rotting filth that they saw in Scala. And it made me really sad that I arrived in London just in time to miss it. 
So go and see Scarlet. Oh, I'm so sorry. Just go go and see Scarlet. You will love it. My niece, who is currently studying art in Kingston, she went to see it and it blew her mind and it will blow your mind as well. And also, I am the last person on planet Earth to read Demon Copperhead, Barbara Kingsolver's incredible novel. Uh, the reimagining of David Copperfield in the Oxycontin meth belt world of the abandoned uh, hills of, uh, you know, the American Rust Belt. It's incredible. It is really is Dickensian, it would be, because it's kind of reimagining of the David Copperfield story. But honestly, I hoovered through it and I can't recommend it highly enough. So I've got two escape routes. And that. That makes up for Alex's one being an East Spring clean, which sounds like <laughs> torture, not an escape route. Sorry. Seriously. Don't yeah. knock it till you've tried it. And that's the end of the Tuesday edition of Oh God, What Now? Thank you, Marie LeCant. Thank you. Thank you, Alex Andrea. My pleasure. And thank you, Rachel Condiff. Thank you. Oh God, What Now? We'll be back on Thursday for our backers and Friday morning for everybody else. Don't forget that Patreon link in the show notes. We're here because of your support. So if you want to chip in a little bit more, our gratitude would be unmeasurable. And if you want a little bit of something more to listen to, then try the new episode of Ros Taylor's post-war history series, Jam Tomorrow. This new edition is all about the £10 Poms who emigrated to Australia after the end of the war. It's available right now. It's really good. And there's a link to that in the show notes as well. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Oh God, What Now? was written and presented by Andrew Harrison with Marie LeConte, Rachel Cunliffe and Alex Andre. It was produced by Chris Jones with audio production from Robin Lieber. Art was by Jim Parrott and socials by Kieran Leslie and Mike Bolland. Managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, group editor Andrew Harrison, and Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production.